0: Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vantone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. Helping more people get on the pathway to careers in healthcare is what Futuro Health is all about. So we know firsthand how many barriers there can be, from English proficiency to digital literacy, to holding down a job and caring for family while trying to learn. Our guest today spent decades at University Health System in San Antonio, Texas, breaking down those barriers through employee training and education programs, and is here today to share her insights, most of which apply to employers in all industries. Jackie Berrant is now president of Award Winning Results, a firm that focuses on transforming organizations through people development and gaining recognition for employees. She also helped write the Association for Talent Development's recently published handbook for training in healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jackie.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Vaughn. It's very exciting to be here. Uh, Your work is amazing and I'm happy to be able to contribute some of the experiences that I've had.
0: Jackie, let's start with getting an overview of your work at University Health Systems and the kind of training challenges and achievements you saw there. What are some of your proven practices from your UHS days? My goodness, there were so
1: many challenges, but I'm happy to say there were lots of successes too. When I started there, it was a long time ago. I spent 32 years there as the executive director of the Center for Learning Excellence, and at that time, to be honest, University Health had a identity crisis or a self lack of self-esteem. We were known, first of all at that time, as Bayer County Hospital District. And you wouldn't think that a name necessarily would have that much to do with uh, the training, but it does. People didn't really want to be associated with a county. They saw that as subpar. So very early on, we realized for, uh, and for external recruiting and the public that we needed to change our name so we became University Health because we were and are the teaching facility for University uh, of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. And that was a big help. And we also set about uh, getting a better uh, self-image and better self-confidence by winning some awards and getting some recognition for the great work that we were doing. We weren't shy about that. We were careful to document our successes, profile our folks who were successful, and get them some great recognition. Some of the things that happened uh, from the very beginning, when I walked in, I recall being somewhat horrified, <laughs> to be honest. It was my introduction to healthcare. I never knew one single thing about healthcare. I had worked in uh, two high tech firms, and so I was uh, very shocked to see that there was so much work to be done. And uh, I remember telling my husband, Oh, I'm just going to take this job until something I really want comes along. And he teased me about that for over 30 years. It was so fulfilling to be able to take those challenges and turn them into successes. And it was personally rewarding for me to see someone who came in, for example, as a Bosnian refugee with no English and to see them eventually become employee of the year in the uh, annual recognition in the management category. There were lots of successes like that where you could actually see that growth it was so rewarding at the time also was very siloed in that there it was primarily nursing education clinical education very little time or money or any kind of resource was spent on getting all the rest of the staff up to speed it was nurse focus, so i very quickly made that my goal that we were going to educate and get everyone skilled in what we needed to be a top class organization i'm proud to say that university is now widely considered as a top tier uh, organization both for their clinical expertise and for their staff competence. The uh, university has won the ATD Best of the Best award now, which is only for those who've won. 10 or more times, and they've now won 12. And they're right up there with IBM and other uh, big winners with enormous self-esteem. So I feel like uh, we worked really hard by trying to find the resources. And that's what today's uh, talk I know is going to be about, is where do you find those resources to build up your staff all of the staff, when uh, budgets are tight. University is a tax-supported entity, and so the resources are tight. And it was uh, a quest of building community partnerships and getting uh, national grants from Kellogg Foundation and, and all sorts of wonderful people who helped out. It was definitely uh, strategic partnerships that got us to move up and to do such a better job. Wow.
0: Uh, It sounds like a Cinderella story where you you really (laughs) took a diamond in the rough and brought the organization to a level of prominence in terms of readiness and skill sets of the workforce. Can I just push you a little bit on um, the example you talked about with Bosnian refugees and bringing them into the workforce? Yes. Can you tell us more about the mechanics of that and why employers would want to reach into that pool and what the barriers are for that pool to actually uh, be able to work in healthcare roles in the US?
1: Yes, great question and something that we saw Uh, with each wave of immigration and are continuing as we speak today to see as each new group would come uh, fleeing from religious persecution war whatever and come in under the Department of State uh, we would welcome them through Catholic Charities I'm a huge fan completely transparent of Catholic Charities as the faith-based organization that's doing so much good uh, for everyone and this was a great win-win They had new people who needed to get employment. And we had a need at University Health to uh, fill some positions, particularly starting on the night shift. Frequently when refugees came into our organization, they would uh, receive jobs in the Environmental Services Department, which primarily consisted of housekeeping tasks, people who would clean the lobby, the patient rooms, make the beds, things like that. So what would typically happen is Catholic Charities would work with our recruiters to place them. We would begin them in a, a somewhat out-of-the-way job, like the night shift on a, a patient floor where they wouldn't be uh, necessarily interacting directly with a lot of public until we had been able to get their, their skills up. And then immediately we would try to get them into ESL, uh, GED programs, and work with them to upskill in English this was obviously a patient safety requirement and one of the things that we we know in healthcare is that those people by the bedside maybe the environmental service workers those are the people that the patients are going to communicate with Uh, those are the people that they're going to tell things to that they're not necessarily going to tell the doctor or the nurse they were such a valuable commodity and they had amazing skills in empathy they had so many great skills and they would always say but this is how we treat our family so they had cultural skills that turned out to be amazing so Eventually we would get to move them to another shift where they would come in more contact with the public and then we were able to use them uh, to become dual language interpreters for the hospital. So we created a bilingual interpreter education program. We put them through that program and then they were allowed uh, to interpret, whereas others were not. And uh, this all came about because of joint commissions ruling that we could not use bilingual staff who weren't trained. What had been happening all over the country was that environmental service workers who happened to speak a particular language were being dragged into the cardiac cath lab or somewhere and interpreting when obviously that wasn't appropriate or safe. So we were able to elevate these folks to interpreter status. They got a trained, they got a badge, they got a stipend, they got all sorts of additional perks, if you will, for for this effort. So we were able to spot this is a skill that we could use that would benefit the organization and yet it would also elevate them. And that's what we tried to do throughout. How can we elevate the organization's business goals and elevate the
0: staff at the same time? I have two clarification questions. So this population that you're talking about, immigrants who have come over, um, you're talking about picking the ones that have prior healthcare training or experience and then moving them into your workforce? No, not at all. Oh, so they could start with no experience. Exactly, exactly.
1: Now, it's true that we did have people who had some experience and we worked with the community college to see if we could get them to get uh, equivalencies for their training, that's a very difficult. I will tell you, uh, in Texas for sure, to get someone who's not that uh, fluent in the language and needs to pass a, certi- a board certification. It's very, very difficult. Uh, we usually were not able to, to accomplish that, I'll be honest. We tried uh, very hard in the beginning and then realized maybe we need a different route. So in this case, we would try to get them into some areas that had adjacent or similar skills. And maybe someone had been a pharmacist. In Vietnam, for example, we had quite an influx of uh, people who had been pharmacists in Vietnam highly qualified and we were maybe able to get them to step into the pharmacy tech position which is clearly not the same nonetheless it's a pathway to to get them in and then we try to support them with uh, tuition reimbursement continuing education reimbursement all sorts of things that could help them to keep going on that path
0: so you talked about coming into healthcare, and I wonder, what do you think is unique about training workers for healthcare?
1: Wow, that is really a, a long answer. <laughs> I'll make it as short as I can. It was quite a shock to me to to learn what is unique about it. And the first thing is the schedule. It's 24-7, 365. Everybody is working round the clock holidays it doesn't matter they're there so the logistics of trying to figure out when someone could come to class because you cannot leave the patient obviously (laughs) if you're in patient care you got to be there and so someone has to cover for you if you are going to a class and that was different for me I was used to teaching people who could get up and leave their desk and you know come back and everything would still be there so that coverage issue is very important the scheduling is very important another really important facet of healthcare that's unique is the dependency on interprofessional teams If you've ever been to an ER, it's a team in action. And every single person on that team is vital. And every single person on that team has to know their lane, their skill, what their job is. They have to know how to communicate well with everyone else on the team. It's its fascinating to me that healthcare gives you that up close and personal look as an employee. If I'm a brand new environmental service worker and I'm in there cleaning up, I'm going to be able to see that there's a physician, there's a nurse, there's a tech. There are all these jobs that I could have. And it, it's it's a way almost of job shadowing uh, every day without having to officially job shadow. There's a great diversity of jobs in healthcare and a lot of it is crucial to the workings of that interprofessional team. So I think that's something that's unique to healthcare, the logistics, the timing, and the career paths. The The nice thing about healthcare is it already had well-established career paths. So the whole concept of competencies is well ingrained in healthcare. And so is the idea of a learning path.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for giving our listeners some insights on the healthcare field and what it takes to um, set up Skilling arrangements for for healthcare employees. Now, um, you mentioned previously that you you've been working with adult learners, including the refugees, uh, with English as a second language and getting their high school diploma equivalent. What are some insights about how these programs can be most effective?
1: Yes, and we had varying degrees of success with uh, different approaches that we took. The ones that worked the best were ones that were on site. It's, it's not going to work to ask someone who works a 12-hour shift or maybe has another job or has childcare responsibilities. They're not going to be able to go somewhere to a class like a community college or anything like that. So you've got to have it on site. And again, you've got to look at the what is the right time to have the class because you have people you know, coming in at 7 a.m., going out at 7 p.m. So there's, there's a lot of research that has to be done into scheduling. But you definitely want to have it on site. You, as the employer, need to be the person who offers the room, who offers the parking to the instructor who's coming in from the outside, who sets up the media, make sure that you have everything that you need in the classroom if possible, and you can provide a snack. Again, these people are working very hard. They're going straight to class right after getting off work. So any extra thing you can provide is great. And the best part about working with the community college or someone who's getting a grant is that they frequently get wraparound services. And this is usually something that we're not allowed to spend our budget on. Bus passes, child care, stethoscopes, uh, scrubs, uh, the licensing, it, you know, you'll be taking an exam to get a certification, there's going to be maybe a study course fee, then there's going to be a fee to take the certification. So if you can partner with someone like a community college that's gotten this grant to provide those wraparound services, your success rate is going to be so much higher. It's a very delicate balance. And I, I remember repeatedly, if one thing goes out of Whack, like a car breaks down or someone gets sick, it puts the whole equation off, and then probably they can't they can't be in class, they can't complete the program. Those wraparound services are fantastic.
0: I'm glad you brought attention to the wraparound service. Uh, I remember my days in workforce development in the energy sector. There was a portion where the students needed to physically go somewhere. And if you can think about the gas also associated with getting there, um, it took coordination of all the students and carpooling and sharing of gas money, not to mention the childcare involved. There's so many of these small barriers that are in the way of adults getting to the end line
1: exactly could I just mention a few more crucial things to success that we learn please 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 so one is a massive communication campaign from the start to the finish how do you let these people know that this program is going on they're not necessarily keyed into, you know what's going on they may work the night shift. they may be very insular in terms of their communication so it's very important that you work with if possible in our organization it was corporate communications to get the word out and then the key is the manager their direct supervisor their manager if you can get in with them and really treat them well and communicate with them all of the time they help you recruit it's very difficult to get your message across about the class and that it's free and what time it is and all of those, those details. So we worked very hard on communication. We worked very hard with the managers, also the executive. It's important that they know what you're doing and especially success. we were very good at keeping our records of our success and our metrics. We wanted to enter these awards. We had to have results. We wanted to share our success with our organization, with the community for that matter. So we were, we had very good Spreadsheets, And that's why I could tell you that we had someone who came in as a refugee speaking no English and wound up being Employee of the Year in the management category. We tracked all of that so that we could report on that. Also celebrating. We love to celebrate, and we do it well, and they loved it. We would always have um, a celebration at the end, a big graduation. We would make um, our own certificates, and then we would have one from the community college, and we would frame them, and we would invite their families, very important if you can get their families involved in this too, because many times they told us, you know, my daughter says, mommy, why are you studying? What are you doing all the time? Why can't you play? And, and she is explaining, I'm doing this to get a better job, you know, have a better apartment, whatever. So they're role models for their families. And I have never seen so much happiness as I saw at those graduations. It would make, it makes me cry right now seriously just to think of it those families were dressed up Uh, they brought flowers for their moms dads whatever they were ecstatic we always invited all their supervisors of course and the executives we invited everyone and I remember uh, one time someone from outside said to me oh my goodness, you have wedding quality food <laughs> for these celebrations. And I'm like, well, of course we do. This is this is a big deal and we want it to be seen as a big deal. So we would celebrate and then we would share. So we would write case studies about it. We would go on wonderful programs like these and talk about it. Uh, we would have things in our internal communications about it because we wanted them to be famous and to share what they had done with the rest of the organization. So those are uh, some of the main things, having it on site, wraparound services, manager support, executive support, celebrations, communication, and sharing.
0: The whole combination just changes lives. So thank you for sharing the recipe for doing so. Now, I mentioned previously that you had a critical role in the Association for Talent Development Handbook so important for healthcare Uh, as a matter of fact you wrote one of the chapters um, on upskilling and reskilling and I was wondering if you could give us some insights on what you had written
1: yes thank you so much yes I wrote three chapters and then co-edited the entire handbook and that chapter the reskilling upskilling chapter turns out that's the one that most people are interested in right now it's very uh, hot topic and uh, I did a lot of research and it was funny because i kind of put off writing that chapter i wrote the other two and i was a little reticent to start on it i didn't know where to start and then suddenly i sat down and i realized oh my gosh this is your whole life this is what you've been doing your whole life is upskilling reskilling and I thought even back to my father you know my father was in the navy in world war ii and that's what they did they reskilled them they gave them my father was a watchmaker a jeweler when he got out and then when I was in a teenager I was part of the great society in the war on poverty I was in the neighborhood youth corps and I was instead of spending time at the pool in the summer I went every day to city Hall. Hall and typed cemetery records and got some skill, some clerical skill. And then everything I've done uh, before I even came to healthcare, you know, I taught ABE, adult basic education. I taught GED. I taught ESL. Um, and then when I got to the health system, it was just a normal thing to keep reskilling, upskilling, going. And there was there was such a need. So it turns out that i guess i've been doing it all my life and it it wasn't that difficult for me to write and then right in the middle of that of course the pandemic hit and everyone was upskilling and reskilling left and right uh so that was uh, that was an amazing thing we all had to learn how to use zoom and teams and um to meet virtually to teach virtually to do everything virtually. So it was a, it was definitely a time of upskilling, reskilling for all of us. I think we could all relate to what some people are going through with technology every day. We had to do that ourselves. At, at University Health, we had begun an enormous electronic health record uh, implementation of a brand new product right before the pandemic hit and then we had to change all of that training convert it over to virtual which was an amazing feat there were over 10,000 people who were trained and uh, a quarter of a million there was 225,000 or something lessons on this new health record were completed virtually so right in the middle of the pandemic everyone had to switch to virtual learning we couldn't stop the implementation of this electronic health record. So that was a a widespread, large-scale digitization, digital skills effort that happened very successfully uh, despite the pandemic. Another thing that happened during the pandemic that had to do with upskilling and reskilling was in the early part, people were not going to ambulatory care centers. They weren't getting their sur- elective surgeries done, none of those things were happening. People were quarantined, people were locked down, people were at home. So all of the people who worked in those facilities needed work. University took those people and brought them to the main hospital where the COVID patients were being brought. and. Upskilled and reskilled them into how to take a travel history, which was a big deal at the time where you had traveled, if you can remember. Uh, doing vital signs, doing the script that you have to ask everyone, and, and teaching them about PPE. So, all sorts of people were upskilled and reskilled during that to go from the place of no need to the place of great need. And interestingly enough, University Health did not furlough or lay off one person during that time, not one. Every single person retained their job. It might be a different job. They were prepared for it, though, through upskilling and reskilling, whereas all around us in healthcare, care, uh, people were losing their jobs. So it was a, it was a wonderful thing to see that adaptability in, in the staff and the support of the executive team to say, we believe in our own internal talent. We've, we've been developing an internal pipeline now for as long as I can remember. We're gonna keep doing that. We're not gonna, we're not gonna change what we stand for.
0: I'm wondering, Jackie, when you mentioned that you were researching ideas on upskilling and reskilling, were there some that were particularly bold or fresh?
1: You know what's interesting about that i think the boldest one that i've heard and i don't know uh, how well it's going to fare is to just ditch the whole idea of academic credentials and let people come in based on skill so we say skill is important and we're putting all this emphasis on upskilling and reskilling but in the end it doesn't really matter in so many cases what your skill level is. You can't get past that barrier if you don't have the right piece of paper. And I know people are looking at that now and saying, "Can we convert to a skills-based recruitment, hiring? Can we do that?" To me, that's very bold.
0: Yes, there's a there's a whole set of uh, parties coming together, and it's still in its early days, but let's let's wish the movement luck. Uh, check out the efforts by the Marco Rework Alliance, which is a, a set of national organizations that have come together to promote uh, these types of practices that are more inclusive uh, for the workforce. Now, Jackie, you feel very strongly that it's a moral imperative for employers to invest in upskilling and reskilling of the employers. I can see that in your very comments. Why do you feel so strongly?
1: I really believe that the solution to ending many of the problems that we've been experiencing recently, crime and homelessness and so many things, have to do with ending intergenerational poverty. And that requires better education and better jobs. So, this is where we can make a difference. Each of us as a human being can commit to ending intergenerational poverty by upskilling the workforce. You know, there's a saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. It's a great saying, it's true. However, that doesn't help you if you don't have a boat. And so I think that what we see with upskilling, reskilling, getting a better job, it's like having that boat that you need for the rising tide. So all of us who work and live in our communities, our, our organizations are part of that community. We have that moral and ethical and social calling to do what we can to make a better world these are people whose lives can be improved dramatically by gaining skills I've seen it happen so many times and there never ceases to be an end to the need to do this. As we see more and more people coming over, whether they're coming across our southern border that I'm very close to, whether they're coming across through the Department of State, wherever they're coming from, this is one of the things that has made our country great. And it continues to. And so I feel that we as Americans have that duty, that moral commitment to help everyone to have a better life, and in the end, it's going to help all of us because I think that, again, we'll have such a better environment to live in. And it's just, to me, it's the greatest win win. I can't think of a single reason not to do it.
0: Well, why don't we close out with a favorite topic that we both share, which is the topic of public private partnerships? In my book, which is actually by the same name, Workforce RX, as this podcast. I talk about building an ecosystem of the willing, uh, partners, including community colleges, faith-based groups, local organizations, many of whom you've listed uh, in your comments. Tell us again, why does that model work? Why do partnerships? Everyone brings something to the table.
1: And it's the perfect win-win-win because as an employer, you have the workers and you need help very few people have budgets to invest in lots of expensive training so it's very important to be an employer you're seeking someone who can help you out you have great partners with community colleges who have who are able to get grants who have workforce departments that's their specialty they're trained they know exactly what to do to come in to assess the skills to evaluate they are an ideal partner i've partnered with community colleges now for many many years always successfully great partnerships they need you sometimes they they don't have the place again you want to have it on site so they're willing to come in and work with you the faith-based organizations god bless them i can't say enough good things about them they they truly have the best interests of people at heart. They have vast experience in developing people. They are really in the people business. So they're able to give sometimes the support that, um, that you can't give. So among the three or however entities you can get, you're able to patch together a great partnership. Each one bringing an element to the table that again benefits the community everyone wants their community to thrive and these are the three groups that can come together each one contributing uh, working together knowing that we help them they help us those relationships go beyond this particular uh, event of a workforce development program they continue on into the community
0: in so many ways well well said well, thank you, Jackie Moran, for spending time with us today, inspiring our listeners to continue their hard work and their dedication to change lives.
1: Thank you. And that is perfect. That is what we're all about changing lives. Thank you so much for shining the spotlight on this very particular way to do exactly that.
0: I'm Von Tone Quinlivan with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. <music>